0: thank you for joining this bonus episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. This program is devoted to promoting conversations about diversity inclusion and inclusion in veterinary medicine. On this episode, we're going to spend a bit of time with Dr. Evan Morris. Evan is a veterinarian uh, working in Cleveland, Ohio. He's a good friend of mine, so this should be a real hoot. Uh, he's a 1968 graduate of Tuskegee School of Veterinary Medicine and has been practicing in the Cleveland area for 50, 48
1: Almost
0: 50 years. Almost 50 years. So in this episode, he'll talk about his time being a veterinarian, a freedom fighter, a lifelong student, and a wonderful, wonderful friend and colleague. So this episode was filmed uh, in his clinic in Warrensville, Ohio, and uh, while I was visiting on spring break. So without further ado, we'll just go ahead and get started. So how did you... What age were you when you decided, you know, this is kind of the path that you wanted to take?
1: My goodness, Lisa, actually, my mom tells me that at about age six, seven, eight or so, before I could pronounce the word, people thought I wanted to be a vegetarian. (laughs) Because I would always say, I want to be a veterinarian, but it didn't come out at seven or eight. So my mom always said, Boy, just say you want to be an animal doctor. (laughs) So actually, when I was um, a young lad, when other boys were playing baseball and basketball and football, I would head for the woods and I would catch salamanders and chipmunks and birds and frogs and toads. And so they dubbed me nature boy. And so it was sort of a natural um, pattern for me. By the time I got to high school, I became night attendant at an animal hospital. So okay. instead of going home after school, I would go to animal hospital and I would stay there at night and take any emergency calls and change bandages and what have you through the wow. night. And then The next morning I go back to high school and after i would come back to the animal clinic. So that was for the last three or four years of my high school education.
2: Wow.
0: So, uh, uh, Dr. Morris is also a Richmond native, where we're both from Richmond, home so girl. Home girl. Home girl. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh,
1: so where'd you go to undergrad? I went to Tuskegee, uh, and then I left and went up to University of Virginia, and then I came back to Tuskegee, and I completed my veterinary degree at the renowned School of Veterinary Medicine at then Tuskegee Institute. Okay,
0: all right. Right. So tell us about that time at Tuskegee. There's
1: a lot going on in the 60s. Turbulent, turbulent times, the turbulent 60s. Actually, in Virginia, in Richmond, I had done quite a few lunch counter sit-ins. Uh, we had picketed department stores, Tallheimer's and Millen Roads downtown. And so by the time I got to uh, Tuskegee, I was uh, sort of a, an activist. Um, I came in my green army jacket and Levi's and sandals. And it, um, it just sort of... It, accentuated as the civil rights movement got more underway, way because we were next to Lounge County and that's where the Black Panther Party had mm-hmm. begun and so H. Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael and Eldridge Cleaver and Malcolm X were always through campus sort of just um we saw that there was kind of when things weren't happening up north Tuskegee was a place to kind of relax and regroup and, and mm-hmm. stage it was a staging area actually okay. and of course Dr. Martin Luther King spoke there at the chapel sure. a few times and so by the time the uh, civil rights movement really got underway, one of my classmates, uh, Sammy Young, was protesting in downtown Tuskegee and he went to use the white bathroom and he was shot and killed. And he was actually the first college student killed in the civil rights movement. And we became very embittered after the verdict was announced that the person who shot him was found innocent. And so we marched downtown with black spray cans and painted, painted the Confederate statue downtown, black with a yellow stripe down his back and tried to pull his stature down. And boy, it was just a big hullabaloo. And, and subsequently, the March from Montgomery from Selman to Montgomery got underway. And so my friend Roscoe Moore and I joined the march and participated in that march from Selmont to Montgomery, 1965. The, the fact of the matter was that we felt that the time had come to no longer I guess what happened actually in my case was when Martin Luther King came up with that term, beloved community, mm-hmm. I thought, why don't I have a beloved veterinary community? And, you know, the twin pillars being social mm-hmm. and economic inclusion. Yeah. And so I felt then, as I feel now, that that term, although it was a general term for all aspects of, of life and society, that a beloved veterinary community was something that I've always felt that we should embrace and to work toward in our profession. A beloved veterinary community.
0: Beloved veterinary community. Yes. So, uh, so you were at Tuskegee by way of uh, Rich- Charlottesville by, Rich- <laughs> from Richmond, <Richland>. right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So,
0: how did uh, you end up here in Ohio? Well, in in June of
1: 1968, when I when I graduated, I uh, I went to Atlanta to work with Dr. Ashley, who owned a veterinary hospital, a fellow Tuskegee alum from about class of '63 or so. Now I was with him for just a few weeks, and um, we got a call from the dean, Dr. T.S. Williams at Tuskegee, saying that there was a veterinarian in Cleveland, Ohio, a Dr. David Ricards, who was practicing in Cleveland in an area that had been essentially 100 percent Caucasian. But the racial mix was starting to change, and there were African-Americans starting to move into that area, and he wanted to recruit a African-American veterinarian. Well, he wanted number one in class, but he was going back to Puerto Rico. So so he said, well, I'll take number two in class. Well, he's going back to Africa. So he said, well, who do we have? Well, (laughs) Evan Morris came up next. And so I came to Cleveland and interviewed with him. And one thing led to another, and I just decided that I much preferred to come here to Cleveland. And so upon my arrival, I just stayed at YMCA downtown for the first couple of weeks. And then finally, Dr. Card said, well, look, why don't you come and just stay at my home? Mm-hmm. He actually invited me to his home, and his, his, his uh, son and daughter shared one bedroom, and I took the daughter's bedroom, oh, and wow. there I stayed for the first six months of my time here in Cleveland. Well, at that time, there had never been an integrated veterinary practice in Cleveland. I think I was probably the second or so African-American American veterinarian in the state of Ohio. Wow. And so the new local newspapers picked up on this. There were big newspaper articles, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Sun Press. So subsequently, the African-American clientele in Cleveland started coming more and more in mass to his animal hospital. It was actually, a, a business case for diversity long before that term was even coined. Mm-hmm. Because in the four years I was there, the clientele actually became more predominantly African-American than um. Caucasian. So that one thing led to another. And He's now 91 years of age, and we continue to have just the most warm, intimate relationship. We talk almost daily. Mm. Uh, We consult on cases, and uh, it's just been a a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Dr. David McCard.
0: Truly, he is a visionary. He was certainly a visionary at that time to kind of think about the changing demographics of the city and how he could meet that need. Um, I know I've heard him talk a bit about that. Um, What is the, you know, how did that I mean, how did he think about
1: that? Well, you know, he was interviewed early on by the uh, the Afro-American mm-hmm. newspaper called him. and I said, we understand you uh, have an African-American veterinarian there practicing you in Cleveland. He said, well, can you explain to us, this was the, the uh, journalist from the Afro-American uh-huh. paper, he said, can you explain to us why you picked an African-American veterinarian? He said, well, I don't consider people by race. They all belong to the human race. Mm-hmm. And so with that criteria in mind, he just... He's just a, a humanist, and know, just a all-encompassing, wide-thinking, global-oriented uh, individual who just made a place for me, and I'm eternally grateful for that.
0: So, what was it like? I mean, you saw the clientele
1: change, you know, but what oh, was goodness. what, what um, was
0: those first few years
1: like? Well, i just practice? tell you a couple of incidents that might okay. sort of let you know what happened. One of my first few days in Cleveland, um, we um, we had waiting room, we entered from the rear. So the client would come in from the exam room, mm-hmm. a waiting room to the exam room, and the doctor would come in from the back. So we had a client in one of the exam rooms, and I was told to go in because it was the next appointment. But well, when I went in, I opened the door from the rear, there was a lady there. Or I think she was Italian, seeing, but she certainly was a white lady. And she had a little dog on the table. And so when I walked in, she just grabbed her dog and just wrapped up her apron and wrapped up in her, and just scurried out of the door. Oh my. Another time I had a client with a bird because we had a lot of exotic animals there. And so he had a minor bird. And so once again, I entered from the rear and I opened the door mm-hmm. and there the minor bird was sitting on the table. And the minor bird looked up and uttered the N-word oh my. about three times. And so the owner said, oh my goodness, doctor, I'm so sorry, I got this bird from a sale. I had no idea he knew how to <laughs> say this word and well, Mm-hmm. <laughs> we knew, and the bird said it again, uh, so Gee, I, where I was at Monobird, and I was, never can forget some of those first few incidents. I had an Austin Hilly 3000 sports car I had brought up from Alabama, mm-hmm. and I came up one night and the top was just, was sliced, mm-hmm. and there was a swimming pool behind the, the shopping center where we worked, and the N-word was just, every evening when I go to my car, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. That's what I had to deal with. This was in 1968. So, but Dr. Ricard supported me through all of these things, and eventually I ended up becoming a member of the Cleveland Academy of Veterinary Medicine, which was essentially um, closed to yeah. minorities. And over the years, uh, I eventually came from being just a member, and 10 years later, I became president of the Cleveland Academy of Veteran Medicine.
0: Really speaks to the importance of um, sponsorship, mentoring, friendship, and uh, good
1: business practice, too. All all of the above.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: All right. of the above. So, when did you open
2: this clinic?
1: I opened this hospital where we sit today on June 5th, 1972. I um, essentially decided that I wanted to follow in, in the footsteps of my dad. Who was an entrepreneur? He owned his own barbershop in Richmond, Virginia. He always taught to me the value of entrepreneurship and business ownership. And so, um, over Dr. Ricard's plea to remain with him <laughs> and to form a permanent entity mm-hmm. together, I struck it on my own and came out and opened this hospital, and as I said, in 1972. And so, here, 40, Four years later, (laughs) here we stand. We've added on one, two, three additions. uh, Vestibule, rear kennel, and a second floor. Mm -hmm. But um, we're going strong.
0: Yeah. I know there's a lot of discussion now, of course, in the profession about the economics of of veterinary medicine. How's how's business?
1: I'm going to the dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've uh, had a steady incline, uh, upward. Um, mm-hmm. what's happening here is that um, we have clients from three generations now. We have grandparents whose children have come and now their children are coming so it just makes me feel so warm and heartened to have someone mm-hmm. coming so Dr. Morris my mother brought me here to you when I was mm-hmm. three years old and here I am now and here's my puppy dog and I've now moved to some suburb yeah. 10 or 20 miles away but they, they come back to see Dr. Morris, and it, it's so uplifting. It's it's just heartwarming.
0: So, how many how many uh, how many students, veterinary students, who are now veterinarians, probably made their way through this clinic over quite 40, a few. 40 years. Quite a few. And
1: I keep in close contact with the students yeah. who been here and who are now veterinarians in various cities around the yeah. country been here from high school and right through college. And I, they showed me the letters of recommendation that I wrote for them for admission to veterinary school. And now they are a DBM. Yeah. So thrilling and uplifting, yeah.
0: yes. So uh, you're a lifelong learner. I know that you are a copious reader, but you also went back to school. It's never too late, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> so tell uh, us about, tell us about your, your, your most recent, uh, Degree. Okay. okay.
1: Well, I, as I said, I graduated from Tuskegee in 1968 mm-hmm. with a doctor of veterinary medicine. Well, in 2008, I earned a master's in diversity management mm-hmm. from Cleveland State University. Needless to say, I was a non-traditional student <laughs> because most of the students there were younger than my daughters. And so, um, that was quite an, uh, Let me say this. I had not realized some of the changes that happened, um, not only locally, but internationally and globally until I became involved in the the master's program. What happened was that I had actually become involved on a day-to-day basis with various diversity initiatives. I had become the chairman of the task force on diversity for the Ohio Medical Association. And so I thought there was a need to put some scholarship along with my hands-on practical uh, aspects of my day-to-day activities. And so that's what motivated me to go back and obtain a master's degree. And Cleveland State University had the only master's degree in the United States in diversity management. And so that was a two-year program. And uh it just opened my eyes yeah. to so many strata and levels and depth and, and uh, just... um the total perspective of what this whole diversity undertaking initiative um, really uh, amounts to. And what I ended up with was a new definition for diversity. Okay. And so the definition of diversity I came about, came away with is that diversity is basically the, the act of thinking and acting independently together. Mm -hmm. The act of Uh thinking Thinking and acting independently Doing it together.
0: together, right? So I know a little bit about your thesis, but why don't you tell folks about your your thesis? Because I think it's really, really important for people to to know what they can do to help make sure that the future of the profession is more diverse. Yeah,
1: what I did was basically do a a thorough research of all the literature that existed at that time in mm-hmm. two thousand six, seven, eight on uh, diversity in veterinary medicine. And when you go to the library, we have a library here at the medical school mm-hmm. in Cleveland, and there are rows and rows of volumes of literature on diversity in human medicine, in dental medicine, mm-hmm. pharmacological medicine, but in veterinary medicine, there are about three or four yeah. scant, just minimal uh, volumes of literature on veterinary medicine and diversity. And so I first did a research on what mm-hmm. existed in the in the um in the literature. And then I undertook a survey of about a thousand students. And so what the title of my thesis was was Minority Student Perceptions of the Veterinary Profession. And the result of the thesis of the um of the survey, we came away with um, the reasons why students, in particular minority students, Would aspire to become a veterinarian.
2: Mm -hmm. The
1: two things that came out of the word one, an acquaintanceship with a veterinarian. Okay. But then, secondly, and more importantly, was the uh, apprenticeship Mm -hmm. or uh, employment with a veterinarian or in a veterinary hospital. And those were the two things that the survey showed were the the leading stimuli Mm -hmm. toward a student of color pursuing a Profession or career in veterinary medicine. Um, the um, the other part of it was pet ownership. Uh, mm-hmm. And needless mm-hmm. to say, as a profession, we want to encourage pet ownership, sure. but it was sure. also shown to be one of the stimuli toward making mm-hmm. a decision to pursue a career yeah. in veterinary medicine.
0: But imagine that those two, those three things um, are really important together because owning a pet doesn't necessarily mean accessing veterinary care we would like it to and we promote it too um but the ability to actually make have a relationship with a veterinarian is really important knowing veterinarians and seeing some that look like you um are really important
1: well you you need a critical mass yeah and most minorities have never seen a, a minority veterinarian so that that's a sort of conundrum mm-hmm. that, that we have to approach even to this to this yeah extent. Day, I also made a proposal that, as I think about and talking to you, I came up with a, an idea of what I call pets and vets, which was to start off with veterinarians visiting inner school yeah. school systems and having pets with them, be it a bunny, rabbit, or a yeah. turtle, or a kitten or a puppy, and let the students see and feel and touch and, and just you know have physical contact with these yeah. pets and have the veterinarian there physically in the space to let students see. a a veterinarian. And um, a lot of the inner city school systems and what have you here, the students have never seen a a, a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have dogs and cats and all, but they don't get veterinary care. We started a free animal clinic Uh uh, back in 76, Mm -hmm. Dr. Carge and I. And so periodically, and for some years, it was a quarterly basis, we would go into the inner city areas and we would treat Pets at absolutely no charge. And that's been one of the most uplifting, Mm. thrilling programs. We continue to do that to this day. Sure, sure. Free Animal Clinic of Cleveland.
2: Free
0: Animal Clinic of Cleveland. All right, good deal. Um, I'll have to get information about that for, uh, to make sure that we include at the end of the the show. And and in fact, our uh, May episode of the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast will be um, featuring Dr. Blackwell.
2: Michael okay. Blackwell. Sure. Um, and one of the things that
0: we'll be talking about is access to veterinary medical care um, because there are a number of barriers and it really is uh, um, something that the profession has to kind of think about and tackle. You can expect the the folks that that need the help to to <laughs> yeah, you know they true. they need to kind of you know they want to access it but really the, the the heavy lift has to come from the profession in terms of thinking about how to reduce those barriers.
1: Yeah, and at each and every animal clinic, free animal clinic, we have students or they have parents would actually mm-hmm. come up to us and say, you know, I've never thought about my child pursuing korean career in veterinary medicine. Would it be okay if they would come out and shadow you okay. and spend some time with mm-hmm. you? So a lot of Saturdays we have students who. Because of the free mm-hmm. animal clinic, sure. they've seen veterinary medicine as a viable career yeah, option. Oh, sure. and they come out and they spend it Saturday with me and spring break sometimes.
2: Right.
1: So it's a, it's a, it's a win win situation. Sure, sure. Positive all the way. Sure.
0: Well, there's always kids that are really, really interested. Unfortunately, my. My daughter, we've spent a couple of days with Dr. Morris, Right. <laughs> and I think one yeah. hour in the clinic, and my daughter said, this is not for me. She was fine with
2: the furry pets.
0: <laughs> she was fine uh, with the furry pets, not the had daily rep-
1: ones. <laughs> we have reptiles, right. And so I think that sort of put a halt to her, any aspirations she might have had in that direction. Sure. But the furry ones were okay. The furry ones right. were okay. right. She was great. And I'm still working on her. Value,
0: right? Okay, okay, we're still we're still entry. working
1: on it. Right. Okay, I haven't given up.
0: <laughs> so tell us now, um, and and kind of looking back over all of these years and looking forward, why is diversity and inclusion important? Well, in the, and the,
1: fact and the fact of the matter is, this country is undergoing a profound, uh, just a revolutionary change in racial makeup, and you know, statistics show that probably around. 2040 depending on what survey mm-hmm. you look at certainly by 2050 this country will be majority people of color mm-hmm. and the statistics in the veterinary profession now i mean they're just a woeful inadequacy of veterinarians of color i mean i think probably the latest statistical analysis that i saw was about nine out of ten veterinarians are, uh maybe it's changed a little by now yeah. but probably you know upwards to. 85, 90% of the profession is white. And with the population shift changing now, in order to render culturally appropriate veterinary care, we need to have people of color Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in the profession because um, if you're going to have a a profession that is, I mean, as I see it right now, 2% minority in the population of people of color African-Americans, you know, 12% or so. There's a a disparity in numbers. And uh, I just think the profession should be open, inclusive. There should be uh, sisterhood and brotherhood in veterinary medicine at all levels and respects.
0: Let's talk a bit about what we mean by um, culturally relevant or sensitive care, because I think that that kind of um, trips people up and kind of understanding. I think that um, many people kind of potentially understand um what that means in human health mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily make the connection in um in animal medicine
1: so can we talk a little bit about sure sure out? i mean for instance we, we have a client who come in say um um say a hispanic uh okay. client will come in well they have a sort of a a family uh approach to mm-hmm. the uh presenting pet so and rather than talking to one family member in the waiting room we might have four or five or six family members and so there's a give and take where i'm talking to one family member but pretty soon after bringing the whole family mm-hmm. in we have to sit down and have because that's just yeah. the the, just the just manner, the, manner yeah. that yeah. they're culturally that they're accustomed to making decisions yeah. and so i mean those things and then of course we get african-american mm-hmm. we have to be you know culturally appropriate yeah, sure. in our recommendations and our care and sure. the things that we render toward the pet, yeah. you have to bear in mind the owner's culture.
0: Sure. And taking time to really kind of say, okay, this is this is where, this might be where we want you to get in terms of the standard of care, but there yeah. might be some and steps. It doesn't happen overnight yeah.
1: because be there's, there's there. too many years of cultural tradition behind yeah. it to just mm-hmm. overnight make mm-hmm. a, a quick, um, uh, you know, getting up to a certain level that we want sure. to get to, but you have to be slow and take your time on sure. a, a cultural basis sure. to reach that, that stage. And I know that a
0: lot of, um, you're, you're, I guess, just down the road from Amish country. Um, and I, I've heard a lot of veterinarians talk about some of the unique challenges. So this isn't just a people of color too, but really kind of real cultural rooting yeah. um, things where- yeah. That's, um, I would say culturally appropriate, yeah, not, not racially, racially appropriate. appropriate. Yeah, right. so there's some, Unique right. um, opportunities, but also unique challenges in terms of working
1: with different kinds of communities. And I speak with a lot of veterinarians out in the Amish country mm-hmm. out there, and so you're exactly right. Yeah, you have to be culturally appropriate. in yeah. that level also. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: so tell us for um, students, young people that may be considering a career in veterinary medicine. Um, current students in the pre- um, that are in the schools that watch the podcast, and there are a lot of them mm-hmm. um, that watch the podcast, um, what do you want them to know, um, one, about you know veterinary medicine as your yeah. career, and two, specifically about diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine?
1: I want them to know that I, along with many other veterinarians, and I'm not saying specifically me, but we know what it's like to be an outsider. And we know that that there is, let's just say that it's not an unreachable goal to become a veterinarian. And I never thought I would be able to become a veterinarian. I mean, coming from a sort of a, a inner city area in Richmond, Virginia, where, you know, we we were a third floor apartment and, you know, my mother's a domestic worker, my father's a barber and not having any wherewithal, you know, um, to to aspire toward becoming a veterinarian. If I was able to make it, these students by mm-hmm. pulling themselves up by their own bootstrap and getting the commitment and the, the, the strength and the pers- perseverance and the the drive and motivation to do it, it it's it's an attainable sure. it's an attainable goal. Yeah. I mean, we all get here on bridges built by others. Sure. And I hope that I can be a bridge to have others cross to come into profession just as, yeah. as I was able to do. Yeah. And I'm here to in any way undergird, uplift, enhance, motivate, mm-hmm. help in any fashion I can, mm-hmm. night or day. Yeah. And so what about your
0: colleagues? What would you want them to know um specifically really about about
1: um you know where the profession should go with respect to diversity and inclusion? interesting question you know when i was in um elementary school sputnik was uh, launched 1954 and at that time in the in the school system that i was in in richmond virginia that would be school all of a sudden all of our teachers started telling us that you know the world's changing rapidly now you know space sputnik and that we as people of color here we have to join this Revolutionary changes undertaken, mm-hmm. but that it's incumbent on us that there's going to be a double standard we'll be facing and that we have to conduct ourselves with the utmost of excellence and to be just a bit higher than the other mm-hmm. classes of people because we're going to be judging a double standard. And so we always have to be, you know, if we want to get 98 on the test, you know, let's take it up to 99, 100. Because, you know, you have to be better there. Mm -hmm. And so that's always been a motivating force with me. Um, excellence. And Mm -hmm. so my colleagues here in the Cleveland area, the the veterinarians, they watch me and they know that the quality of medicine that I practice, uh, is on a level with any professional practice here, not only in Cleveland, but anywhere in the United States, because we have a high standard, Mm -hmm. a high standard of excellence. And I'm truly a Tuskegee veterinarian. And we were motivated and trained there to be the utmost in professionalism, excellence, and highest quality mm-hmm. of veterinary medicine.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Parting words, What do you want the world to know?
1: You know, my dad always told me, and he only went to about the eighth grade or so, and uh, he had a barbershop in the country. In fact, there's his barber chair we we're looking at there. But he always told me uh, a motto. And many, many, many times he repeated it. And it, it's held me on a, a high level and kept me sustained all of these years. He always said to me, boy, start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can And so that's what I would like to say. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can
0: good word good word so with that we will wrap up the special bonus edition of uh, diversity and inclusion on air i'd like to thank dr morris evan good personal friend of mine colleague friend family what about a hug (laughs) <laughs> and um, this has been great. My time in Cleveland has been great the last couple of days. And I'm just delighted that we were able to make this happen before I left. So thank you.
1: I'm already delighted. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks. So uh, I will be adding some resources as usual to the end of this episode. So stay tuned. Um, be sure to tune in on April 11th for um, the next formal episode, episode I believe, of Diversity and Inclusion on Air, um, featuring Galen Sanderlin from UC Davis. And we'll be talking about sexual orientation, gender identity, and the job search. So you don't want to miss that, especially if you are uh, a senior and looking uh, for post-graduation employment. So thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.